We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. My witness today is Rachel Weiss, who is chairperson of the Menopause Café, which aims to get the whole world talking about the menopause in an open and respectful way and serve them cake. And I think this should be underlined. The conversation is for women of all ages and for men too. Now, Rachel is a woman after my own heart because I believe there are few occasions which can't be improved by cake. Now, the Menopause Cafe is based on the idea of the Death Cafe because it's easy to talk about difficult topics in an ordinary and accessible place and what is more open and inviting than a cafe. Rachel is also the senior partner of the Rowan Consultancy in Perth, Scotland. Her counselling training is based on humanist, gestalt and CBT approaches. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. Thank you. Now, is the menopause and menstruation as taboo a topic as death? Oh, interesting question. I know they both are. I don't think I can rank one above the other, but they are both things that are inevitable and are going to happen. And things that despite that, we live in complete denial of and tend to just assume it's everyone else except us who will die or who will experience menopause. So that's the similarities. I'm sort of wondering if, certainly from where I sit, the menopause and in fact menstruation as well is actually a far more taboo subject than death. My partner died when I was 37 and I am used to talking about death. Yes. As a therapist, I was trained to talk about death and, you know, mm. I will quite happily sit here. And in fact, I will run towards conversations about death because I feel that this is a subject with a lot of life in it. But for me, as a man, when it comes to the subject of menstruation and the impact, yeah. my training was done almost entirely by women. And mm -hmm. in all of that time, bearing in mind I'm trained to talk to couples, I never once was it actually suggested this might be a fruitful topic of discussion. Oh, Whereas okay. we were expected to talk about death. I mean, admittedly, I was trained three million years ago, but I got right. no training to talk about this. Money, sex, death, yeah. all what we'd call the biggies, but mm. menstruation and period issues and the menopause nothing. So okay. I would put it that certainly for men, it's a more taboo subject. Well, you may have hit the nail on the head because you've had experience, very close experience of death, are happy talking about it. When we had a near-death experience with my husband in our 20s, none of our contemporaries could talk about death because it was new for them. So I think once you've experienced it, death, you talk about it. But I agree that once women experience menstruation and menopause doesn't mean they talk about it. So no, I now concede that there's a bigger taboo or silence around menstruation and menopause. And I'm shocked that the couples training didn't include it. I know it was three million years ago, but menopause has a huge impact on relationships. It's a reason many of them break up for better or for worse. Menstruation affects different types of sexual experiences. 
And women were menstruating when I was doing the training as well. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's not a new started. thing, but we've only just started talking about it, at least in mixed company. I think yeah. women have spoken about it, but it's been a sort of secret, don't tell your father kind of topic. Why do you think that is? Shame is my take on it, not based on any research, I must say. I think there's a huge sense of shame about being a woman. So it's quite an existential sense of shame. And talking about menstruation and menopause makes it obvious that I'm a female, whereas if I'm trying to fit into the male world, which women have been trying to do since at least the 60s, if not earlier, I think we've learned to downplay our femininity. Think of Mrs. Thatcher. Brilliant, we had a woman as prime minister, whether I agreed with her or not. But she tried to be a man, is my picture of it. I can't remember any advances for women. Or she would take an archetype like matron or headmistress, and those sort of images are sort of post-menstruation almost, aren't they? Well, they're certainly asexual. That's my theory, is we don't talk about it because we're still trying to compensate for being women, because for the last few millennium, that's been seen as inferior. So we're not going to play up any of the basic difference. And that's such a basic difference, our hormones, our bodies, our menstruation, our menopause. So explain to me what should I have been, what should I have been taught? To be fair, girls aren't taught it either. It's only Diana Dancerbrink has got a campaign, Make Menopause Matter, that means that menopause is now being taught in schools in England from September 2020, not yet in the other parts. So it's not just you. I wasn't taught about menopause and it was absolute 100% that it was going to happen to me. We were given good sex education on menstruation. So why not, why not just mention, you know, even 10 minutes in sex education class? By the way, your periods will stop. Average age is 51. There are all sorts of physical and psychological symptoms that may come along with that. And yeah, if every kid knew that. And so what made you decide we needed a menopause cafe? Uh, because of the silence around it, which shocked me. So what you've said has continued to shock me that even couples therapists don't know. I was about 50 and I watched a BBC documentary, Kirsty Walk did one on the menopause, simply because I thought, oh, I expect it's going to happen to me sometime soon. I better find out about it. So in a kind of general spirit of inquiry, and I watched her programme and was just struck by the suffering of women and their male partners and colleagues due to complete lack of knowledge about it. These women thought they were going mad. They thought they were the only ones they were in despair, and they couldn't talk about it. So I thought that's something I could do. Going mad. Tell me about that. Well, I'll give you a personal example, which is a minor one compared to other women. But my brain fog, so cognitive impairment or bits of memory loss, are part of my symptoms at the moment. So I've had to adapt and start writing things down before I I would remember stuff without even trying dates, you know, useless stuff. So I thought, is this early onset of Alzheimer's? because I had no idea that brain fog or cognitive reduction might be a menopause symptom. So it's a huge relief to realise this could just be the menopause. I mean, to be fair, if I was seriously concerned, I should go and get it checked out. So that's one example. But the women who who get a lack of confidence, high-flying women who used to literally fly all over the place for meetings, and she told me, I just can't. I'm so anxious now, or give present, or whatever. And they think it's them, that it's some failing in themselves or some mental illness. I'm immediately feeling a little bit guilty because I'm thinking of a client at the moment that Mm. I have who has anxiety about driving to places she doesn't know at the moment. And I never really thought that. And, you know, I'm going ting, ting, ting. And I mean, I will now speak to her about it. But this information needs to be more readily shared, doesn't it? I think so. And for therapists like ourselves, I think it's really useful to know that if a woman 
particularly if she's in her 40s or 50s, but menopause can happen at younger ages, suddenly starts with anxiety or depression and has never had it before in her life. I think it's well worth asking, where are you at with the menopause? Could it be related? And she might go, no, definitely not. Or she might be curious. One of the reasons I'm doing this programme is because I'm absolutely terrified of talking about the subject. So, you know, when... All right, <laughs> you're doing well. <laughs> when I have a topic that I'm feeling uncomfortable about, that normally means I need to head there. Yes, I know that. <laughs> My feeling is I sort of don't have the right, and I'm sure lots of other men who'll be sitting here now will actually feel I don't have the right to talk about that topic. Help me with that. Yeah, thought. I'm struck by your use of the word terrified, and I'm wondering what the fear is. I'm, I'm sure it's linked with what you said about not having the right, but what what's that? What's it about? It yeah. is that first and foremost, I might be overstepping a mark, okay. and which is yes. completely utterly ludicrous. But no, he, it's, he, it's not because some women won't want to mention their menopause to a man. So I think that's so that's yeah. that's one part of mm -hmm. it. And if I really think about it, what there is there is what I call the deep stories of our culture. And one of the deep, deep stories of our culture is that, you know, women are irrational because at certain times of the month, they have this wandering womb that mm -hmm. is going to give them all these problems. And if I talk about it, I'm somehow saying that I believe that women are irrational and they have these feelings that are of no consequence and they just that are all down to their monthly cycles. And I'm somehow, mm -hmm. uh, this is why it's so difficult, I'm somehow conspiring with that and I don't want to conspire with no. that. And because and I can't even explain it properly to you. Okay. So I'm concerned, I suppose, that I'm propagating that idea that women are irrational because they have periods. I'm linking their what could be for a hundred and one reasons mm. why my client has anxiety about driving, and I'm immediately putting it to the menopause. But I trust you would do that in a tentative manner, as you would about any link. Maybe pregnancy would be the nearest equivalent, because that also relates to our reproductive and sexual organs. Now, men used to be unable to talk about pregnancy and women would have to stop work. Most men can handle that in a respectful manner. Yes. And actually, there does come a point, and this is, you know, I've had experience with this, that if you've got a couple where the woman is pregnant, there just mm -hmm. comes a point in the pregnancy where they're just sort of not emotionally and physically available for counselling. Mm -hmm. You know, they just reach that point where they just haven't got the energy, the emotional bandwidth or whatever to do the kind of work that we need to do. And I'm sort of used to saying that. We've probably got only a certain amount of time before we're going to, either the baby's going to arrive or you're just going to reach the point where you don't have the emotional bandwidth for this anymore. So, you know, we may plan on doing four weeks of work and we'll pick it up other side of the birth when you're ready. So I'm perfectly happy okay. talking about that because I don't think there is such a myth that is so deep in our society that we find yes. it difficult to talk about. Although maybe there is a myth, but because it's been surfaced and talked about, some of the power has come out of that myth, whether menopause is still, as you say, hidden. And what you've said is exactly why we want menopause cafes to be open to men. If men can come and sit quietly at a table while the women and other people are talking about menopause, then that might ease some of your terror. Mm. And all the men who come to our menopause cafes come in a respectful manner to learn, not to mansplain to us, 
And I'm very touched because it's a bit scary to walk into a room of the majority of women talking about a subject that most men like you just think, God, you know, I just want to pretend this never happens and it's nothing to do with me. But if you love a woman, work with a woman, you know, are a dad, whatever, then it's going to affect you because somebody you love will go through it. Mm. So, yeah. And what proportion are women and what proportion are men that come generally? The proportion of men varies from 1% to 3%. We've been tracking it. That's pretty miserable, isn't it? Well, I'm okay with that so long as it increases because many women are still very wary. Some of them have never said the word menopause. I was standing around where we had one in Perth Theatre and this woman was looking a bit lost. I knew I was hosting a menopause cap and she said, I'm looking for, do you know where? And she just couldn't say the word menopause. And she had probably never said it in her life because if you don't talk about it at school, if it's not in conversations... Anyway, I've lost my thread of thought, which is one of my metaphors. <laughs> Bring me back to where we were. <laughs> we were talking about the ratio of men to women, oh, and yes. you were saying that even women sometimes find the word menopause difficult so, to say. So the fact that men are a tiny minority in the cafes is not a bad thing. I, our aim is to increase that proportion. But I think if we can build up a sort of movement of women who are comfortable talking about it, then it will be even easier for them when there are more men turning up. I'm immediately struck by having gone to an evening of the vagina monologues. Oh, yes. That probably 30% of the audience there were men. So men are prepared to hear about these subjects. Admittedly, that was a very, very funny evening. But I wouldn't be at all surprised if there's quite a bit of laughter at your menopause cafe too. Well, we believe laughter is essential. We don't want this topic to be all doom and gloom. The, the danger in talking about the menopause is it will perpetuate that myth. And the last thing we want is employers going, oh, we mustn't employ any woman in her 40s and 50s because she's going to go through the menopause and she's going to be affected in all these ways. Because that's not necessarily the case and it would be discrimination. So that is the balancing act. And also, we we have stand-up comedy and we have cabaret at the menopause festivals because that's a good way of getting through things is to laugh about it together. You can speak truth in comedy a lot more easily perhaps than in a serious conversation. And is there a feeling of loss at the menopause? And if so, why do you think that is? Well, it is a loss. It's a loss of our fertility, those of us who were fertile. Even for people who didn't want children or have had as many children as they wanted, it can still feel like a loss. It's also the end of a stage of our lives, not necessarily fertility related. It's a loss and a beginning. And it's a time of transition, just like puberty is. You're leaving childhood behind. That can feel like a loss. And you can have the excitement of, oh, I'm a young woman, I'm fertile, I can have sex. So the menopause is a time of loss and ending, but also a new beginning. But because society doesn't value older women, many only see it as a loss. They don't see the other side of the coin, which is it's the beginning of an exciting new stage. And our society or societies in general have always had rituals to help people move from one phase of life to another phase of life. Uh So from being engaged to being married and death is another transition Uh that once again we have rituals for. Do you think we need a, a menopause ritual? Yes. I don't know how public or private. It's a bit like, do you have a menarche ritual when a woman starts her period? So some girls are immensely embarrassed when their parents buy them a cake and celebrate their menarche. So for menopause, I think it needs marking. I'm not sure what kind of ritual. And I would love to know if any societies have had some or do have some. Maybe we should start a ritual. I think it's maybe it's a ritual for women together. Yes, a bit like the red tent movement. I don't know if there's red tent and purple tent where women gather. Right. And I can imagine it's one where the older, wiser women welcome 
the woman who's gone through the menopause. One slight problem with that is the menopause, unlike your first period, it is one particular day. It's the day 12 months after your last period, assuming you're not on, on the pill or anything else. But it's also a very diffuse transition period. So I think a welcoming into the circle of wiser women might help mark that. I've organised rituals, this is for men, where they have a chance to reimagine what the transition from boy to man might be like, and we do a ritual. So I think you can actually bring up all of those feelings and actually then have a chance to talk about them, that I think a ritual would be a really... A really beautiful thing with music and all Chanting sorts of other... and, and group. I think it being the group, I can't remember, but I think some people are beginning to do this. But it's very tiny and started. Well, somebody's got to be the first person to start it. Yeah. And you could serve cake afterwards as well. Yeah. For the Menopause Cafe, our aim is simply to start the conversations, to break that taboo, to bring people together to talk about it. And that could then be a launching pad. It has been for all sorts of other activities, for the Menopause Festival, for things at work, because we hold Menopause Cafe in the workplace. There's a network of volunteers worldwide who host these cafes, and we just want more and more to start. And from that might come rituals or policies or groups, who knows. What sort of conversations have you witnessed that will give us a flavour of what happens? It usually starts with the physical and practical so things like vaginal dryness, well, maybe they wouldn't start with that. You tend to start with hot flushes. You know, what's the easiest stage? And hot flush is the most acceptable symptom to talk about. But I see it's three different stages of the conversation. The first is physical. So the physical symptoms, you can talk about them. That feels a safer, familiar ground. Maybe it's the thing that is most pressing that they want to talk about. You've got the physical, the psychological, and the existential, I'd say. So once you've done the physical symptoms, and people might come to two or three cafes and just stay in the physical area, the psychological will be, who am I now that I'm in this stage, now that I no longer turn heads when I walk down the street? Where's my sense? Maybe that's not the existential, my sense of meaning and being. And the psychological will be the anxiety, depression, lack of confidence. And the existential is, why am I here? Because menopause usually coincides with midlife. Mm -hmm. I think they mesh together the kind of midlife questioning and the menopause questioning of most women spend their first few decades serving others, whether it's at work or with children or, or husbands, partners, um, same-sex partners. They've just all that oxytocin giving out to others. The oxytocin goes down after menopause and we find it a lot easier to go, what about me? What do I want? And women haven't asked themselves that question often since they were children. And they find it difficult to actually ask for what they want as well. Yes. Well, the first problem is knowing what it is. A lot, a lot don't know what it is because they're not used to asking it. And then to ask for it goes against much of what we were taught as girls, which is don't ask for what you want. So if you get praised for doing what others want. So it's very exciting, I think. It, it's a disturbing, upsetting, but it's this a transition. It's like giving birth to a new you who's more assertive, who wears purple and doesn't care what people think so much. But it's a painful transition for some. Mm, yes, because what people think of us is part of our identity. And we've actually then yes. got to say, I'm myself, not who you see. That's a huge difference to, instead of be thinking about outwards, inwards, to think inwards, yes. outwards. Uh -huh. These are incredibly difficult questions. I had a client that came to me this week and she said, I realise I need to ask the question, who am I? I was thinking, well, I think that's at least about another 20 years we're going to be spending <laughs> on that one. But where do you start with this at the menopause? So, so you've got this combination of physical 
and emotional. Mm-hmm. Where do you start with that? Well, it's different for each woman. Where does she start? It's what's most pressing. So for some women, the physical symptoms. What for you? Oh, for me, I'm, yeah. I'm relatively lucky. So far, I seem to be one of the lucky 20% who are not too troubled with symptoms. Is that what you mean? Where do I start? Yes. I guess I start with the spiritual and the existential, but that's possibly because of my background. That's the one that's really interesting for me. Tell me about the spiritual and existential questions you've been asking yourself. Well, the beginning of this year, I read this book by Richard Rohr called Falling Upwards, a spirituality for the two halves of life about how the first half of life, you know, it's about doing. And then the second is about more deeper and slower and meaningful. And for me, that's what the menopause has been part of and triggered because I spent a few decades bringing up kids and building a business. And now it's more maybe the smaller things like taking time to sit still or watch the sunset. It sounds deadly boring, doesn't it? And it will do if you're in your 20s and 30s. But at our age, I think we appreciate these slower pleasures and not just pleasures. It's also looking at my own failures on a daily basis. And those are humbling experiences. I I make mistakes. I hurt people when I don't mean to. It's self-compassion, really. It's about learning that we're all imperfect. We all hurt people when we don't want to. We all make the world a worse place as well. I don't mean to beat ourselves up. We're also all wonderfully divine and have that Mm. divine spark in us and do things. But that self-compassion, to be kind to yourself, to recognize the common humanity, that we all fail and that's okay. Um, And just to be mindful of it, not to get consumed with, aren't I awful? Self-forgiveness. Yeah. It's tough, isn't it? And I think those of us, Andrew, who are in these jobs of being psychotherapists and helping others and healing others, need to keep coming back to ourselves and healing ourselves and being kind to ourselves. It can be a displacement. It's very satisfying to help other people heal. And sometimes that can be an avoidance of our own work. And I think we just go between the two. So yeah, self-forgiveness. And until we've done all of that, I think it's hard to be truly compassionate for others in a grounded way. I read the Richard Raw book as well, and I would thoroughly recommend that. We'll put the details in our show notes. Have you read The Middle Passage by James Hollis? No, I'm going to write that one down. (laughs) You're in for a treat. What he talks about, the middle passage is between the first part of our life and the second part of our life. Ah. And the second part of our life can happen actually at any point. It's the point where we truly accept that we're not immortal. And then you have to ask yourself the three important questions of life. The one that we're asking is, what makes my life meaningful? The second one is, who am I? I have to say, that's the one I'm still struggling with. And the, the one that's the easiest one is, what are my values? As opposed to the values of yeah. my parents, the values of my partner, the values of society, yeah. society, culture, culture. what our gym teacher thought was important that we're still holding on to. That's the easier part of it. But it leads into the other two. I would have thought it might, might, might help. And who am I is Yahweh. It's a name God gave himself in the Old Testament. I'm just thinking when you said that. So it's a very profound, I am who I am. Yeah. But the thing with the spiritual, I find, Andrew, is it's beyond words. <laughs> I feel very clumsy talking about it because it, it won't fit into neat words. And I think that's where the rituals are really good because the rituals actually allow us to feel these things rather than actually have to try and put them into words. And we can embody, if we can express them through our body, through the movement, yeah. 
And that's a very powerful way to move on from trauma, as you'll know, rather than we just sit and talk. And then it's all cognitive understanding. If you feel it in your body with, say, in your rituals, I don't know about yours, but usually there's drumming and rhythm and collective movement. Mm. It reprograms us somehow and releases something. Has starting the menopause cafe changed you as a therapist? Oh, interesting. Certainly changed me as a person. Has it changed? And it's hard to separate the two. (laughs) Let's have you as a person, then we'll move on to you as a therapist. Yeah. It's changed me as a person. Well, on a very practical level, I now know lots more about the menopause than I ever knew. All I knew before was your period stop, no contraception, no menstrual hygiene, brilliant. But in a way, it's been my next stage of life. I've had time to do voluntary work because the Menopause Cafe is a charity. We're all volunteers. Now, before I was too busy providing, putting food on the table for children. And this is far more altruistic. And I've ended up doing silly things. Well, maybe they're not silly, but, you know, modelling underwear, taking up running. We do the most crazy things to do fundraising for the Menopause Cafe that I might have been too scared to try before. Coming on podcasts, heaven's sake, you know, being in The Guardian, being interviewed, you know, that's all really exciting new stuff. It's running the Menopause Festival, organising a festival with comedy and cabaret and workshops. So it's opened up my life at a time I had time and energy to do this because that other phase of child rearing and work. One of the things I've been thinking about is that actually this phase that we're entering into, it's about regenerative kind of things. It's about actually using this wisdom that we've gained and actually helping disperse it with other people, sort of mentoring people, Mm -hmm. using that experience to run this festival, which sounds like a glorious event. It's wonderful. But that mentoring is like the archetype of the wise woman or whatever the male equivalent is. Unfortunately, the crone and the witch, you know, the older women archetypes don't have brilliant names, but it's mentoring in a sort of the wiser companyness, not telling people what to do. Just reclaim them, you know. Yes, you just use exactly. the, the word crone, it just means an old wise woman. So yeah. so what? I think of Merlin, for example, mm. as the the wise old man. But think of the older women. It's the stepmother in Cinderella, not so much in Cinderella, more in Snow White. There are fewer benign. There are some, I think, in Sleeping Beauty, Disney, you get them flying around. But a really grounded wise woman like Merlin that would be yeah. good to see a few more of those. I have a friend who says she's reclaiming her hagdom, because mm. the word hag, she wants to be as a powerful, wonderful thing. Well, I mean, lots of words have been reclaimed. The word mm. that I would like to reclaim, and this is another campaign of mine sometime yeah. in the future, is the word old. Yes. It's just a description. There is nothing wrong with old. I am old. Yeah. I'm 61. That's old. So what? And more than so what, I think for me, it's a blessing. I'm happier in my 50s and my 20s. It was very exciting, but I didn't know who am I. And I have a better sense now. And I didn't know what would I do with my life. And I worried about meeting expectations. So to almost rejoice in our age. For women, it relates a lot to the grey hair thing. If you don't dye your hair. Which you don't. Well, I don't. But for a lot of women, it's a big thing to stop dying. And people go, you look old now. And that's seen as a bad thing rather than, yes, I am. All that probably happens to men, but look at all the adverts for women. We should be trying to look younger, we're told. Yeah, but the problem is, the the more you try to look young, actually, the older you look. 
there's a mismatch <laughs> between, and then you end up doing plastic surgery apparently to to match. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> so and you end up looking for women like Nora Desmond. So you know yeah. that's not a good look. Anyway, let's go back mm-hmm. to what you've learned as a therapist from the menopause. Well, cafe. I suppose the practical thing is what we mentioned earlier that I've learned that if someone's presenting, particularly a woman in their forties or fifties with anxiety, depression, haven't had it before, to say where are you at with the menopause? You know, sometimes this is related. I don't know if it is for you or not. And if they say no, then fine. It's not. I think that's the main thing. And for men too, if they're suddenly worried why their wife doesn't want to have penetrative sex with them, or or they think that means they're not loved, I might just say, could it be to do with the menopause? Have you talked about this? I can't know, but I can raise it. And it's perhaps made me more compassionate particularly for the women leaders who I coach, a coach as well as a counsellor, about the different changes going on in them and to give them permission to mention it if they want to. That it's actually, you're allowed to be vulnerable. Yeah, that's a huge thing I find, particularly for women leaders. That's why Brenny Brown's work on vulnerability, I think, is Mm. really helpful. So if people are inspired either because they want to go to a menopause cafe or even better, they want to run one, what do they do? Go to our website, www.menopausecafe.net, and there's a whole guide to signing up to hosting a cafe. But I would say go to one first if you can. We've got them online as well as face-to-face, so it's easy to join one. And just experience it. There's no agenda, no expectations. You get into small groups and have conversations on whatever aspect of the menopause you want to talk about. Our only guidelines are we ask people not to try and evangelize. You know, if black cohash, whatever herbs worked for you, that's great. But just say they worked for me rather than going, you should all be taking this or you should all be using HRT or you should all. If we can just stick to saying what worked for us as individuals. Actually, that's really powerful because we tend to forget there are many, many paths through the woods, so to speak. And I assume the menopause woods, there are many paths through those woods too. Yes, they are. And sometimes the paths double back and go forward. And I understand if something has changed your life and solved your menopause issues, people want to proselytize. But in the menopause, we are more vulnerable. It's like another skin's been taken off. So people can be very anxious, very on edge, and they don't want to be bulldozed by somebody very enthusiastic telling them what to do. And the power of not feeling alone yes. is incredibly important. That's what makes me smile after each menopause cafe I participate in is the feedback from the men who say, gosh, I'm humbled. I had no idea women went through this every month because they learn about menstruation as well about menopause. But mainly from the women going, now I know I'm not alone. And that's immensely encouraging for them. We, In a cafe, we can't change any of their symptoms or the things they're suffering from. But it seems to, yeah, encourage them. And we've got Facebook groups as well that helps Twitter accounts just where people can know they're not alone and share some tips. We're going to discuss a letter that was sent to me in a second. Mm -hmm. And don't forget that if you want to become part of this community, looking to see what makes life meaningful, you can find out more details at my website, www.andrewgmarshall.com and you'll find details of how to get involved. If you do become a member of my supporters club, you can send in one of the letters like somebody did, and we'll be hearing that in just a moment. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits.
I'm talking to Rachel Weiss, who is the chairperson of the Menopause Cafe, and I have a, a letter which I think really expresses some of the things that we've been talking about. I am perimenopausal and would like help explaining what I'm going through to my husband. When I've tried to talk, he seems to glaze over, but when I send him a YouTube video or some article, he tells me I get it, which drives me mad. The difficulty we women face always is that female suffering of many kinds have become so normalised in our cultures as to be expected and then accepted. Once you have acceptance, you have acceptability, and that is insidious. I've had hormonal difficulties, severe PMS, all my life. It caused deep depressions and sometimes raging frustration for a week to ten days every month for nearly 40 years. Occasionally, the depressions were so bad, I thought I was going mad, and very occasionally, I would fantasise, that was all it went as far as, about suicide. I tried for decades to get better clinical help than, one, poor old you, it can happen to some, two, evening primrose oil, wholly ineffective, three, at my suggestion, antidepressants, which helped but nowhere near enough. In the end, I found a gynae endocrinologist whose clinical aim is entirely to help women with hormonally caused mental and physical symptoms. She simply does not believe we should put up and shut up, and nor we should. In my case, some simple blood tests revealed that I had a whopping progesterone imbalance and likely had all my fertile life. I was prescribed non-synthetic progesterone and my life changed within six weeks. I will always be grateful, but how I wish I'd known this at 20 and not 50. How I wish GPs bothered to run these tests and help millions of women. I had 37 years of hormonally caused depressions, not to mention two serious postnatal episodes that cost me, my family and my husband three to four months of my happiness and sanity every year. That's between nine and 12 years of despair and near madness. The social expectation and acceptance that sometimes devastating female hormonal shifts are just life is completely unacceptable. Those shifts destroyed a lot of mine. So what would you say to our correspondent, Rachel? Well, first, I'm just touched by her suffering for nearly 40 years, as she says. It's wrong. I feel cross about that. It reminds me of Caroline Criado Perez's book, Invisible Women, where she says that the medical profession, which has been male-dominated until recently, there is not much research into women. So you have to put up with that. Whereas if it was men, people say it would be taken a lot more seriously. There'd be more research. There's more research into erectile problems than into menopause. My heart goes out to her and her suffering. That's my first response. And then I look at what her questions are. She says, I would like help explaining what I'm going through to my husband. And I'm curious about their communication and what response is she wanting from him? Because she says he seems to glaze over and he tells me I get it, which drives me mad. So clearly she's not getting what she wants. I mean, I interpret it very much as experts' opinions are valued, 
but my personal testimony isn't valued. That's how I read it. Yeah, that her experience was dismissed. Yeah. Because, and it taps into your thing about the myth, because she's just a woman or it's emotional or... Somehow we've got to look at this rationally and maybe experts can do it rationally. But you could look rationally at hormonal imbalance. That makes me quite cross, actually. This is not irrational. It's rational, objective suffering. It's like endometriosis, where people suffer and suffer and are just told to put up with it. Personally, I think that rationality is vastly overrated. Well, I think you've got to put the two together. <laughs> yeah, but even rationally, you can look at what this woman went through and logically observe it and say, let's look at it. But I think that's a really good question. What is it that she would like? What is yeah. the response that hmm. she would like? Because she's not getting it. It's a bit like we said earlier, but She's not saying what she needs. I want help explaining what I'm going through to my husband. Well, it sounds like he's watched the video, he's watched the article, she's talked to him. He says, I get it. So clearly she wants something more from him. And I would be curious whether this is an issue in their conversations in general or only on this topic, perhaps because he's terrified, like you said. Maybe the glazing over is more panic. But when they converse, does he repeat what she says? Does he show he's understood? How does she communicate what she needs? So I think it could be a bigger issue. So I think there's actually a, a useful communication tip that we can give at this point, that it really helps to have what is called reflecting back. So maybe you could tell me something and then I can reflect it back so we can demonstrate it. Okay. So my dad's in hospital this morning having an investigation and I'm quite worried for him and for my mum who's waiting in the hospital car park. So you've said that your father is having an investigation today and you're concerned obviously for him and for your mother who's waiting in the car park. Obviously this is having an impact on you too. Yes, it's it's kind of a distraction in my heart and my head. Even so it's this. a distraction in your heart and your head? Yeah. It seems a bit weird me repeating back to you, but do you feel that I've actually heard you at this precise point? Yes. What I loved about that was you showed you'd heard me. You weren't giving me advice and telling me that your dad had gone through the same thing earlier and had turned out fine, which is nice to know. But right at the moment, I need my emotions heard. So I don't need facts. You aren't asking me questions. What's the operation? How will he recover? You know, getting into that mode. You were simply showing you'd heard me. The other thing I wasn't doing is I wasn't trying to make it better and solve it because obviously I can't. Although those are natural responses, they're not really very helpful. Not always. And this this repeating back is something we teach when we go into businesses to teach communication skills or with couples because people find it very artificial and they say, won't it just sound like I'm parroting? But when they experience it and practice it, it works. So yeah, with couples, it works really well. The, I think it's called the Imago technique. You know, you sit down, one person says something, the other checks that they've understood, and then you swap over. If you want to look at this technique, it's on my website or YouTube. It's reflecting back is how I call it. There's some other things because in it you swap over after a certain mm -hmm. amount of time. So it's not just one way. Yeah. One way. And I wonder if your husband, this I'm not talking to Rachel at the moment, I'm talking to my letter writer, I wonder if the husband needs to be heard because what we've acknowledged is that there's been a huge impact for him. How much does he feel able to talk about his pain with all of this? When I've had clients where the man has actually had to deal with monthly mood changes, he always used to feel it was wrong to talk about how she was in those periods of time when she couldn't help it. So right. it was like he lived with two people, but 
actually couldn't talk about one of these people to the other, with one, the yeah. other one and vice versa because when she was in the tough times she wasn't accessible so it was like living with two people and you couldn't talk about one to the other and i think that does need to be done and that's a conversation that does need to happen i was struck by the grief and loss she expresses for both of them. She does include her husband in that. Yeah. So if I was talking to her, it sounds like the two of you have been through a lot. You've missed these years of your life, these months and days of suffering. And whether it might be useful for the two of them to acknowledge that together. I don't know if that's Mm. what she's looking for. And maybe he doesn't know how to without sounding like he's blaming her. But they've been through a lot together. They've come through it together to be able to acknowledge that grief and move on. And it's mourning, isn't it? Yeah. Back to the death cafe. Our society isn't yeah. very good at mourning. We're supposed to get it over. Move on with and an be aw- positive. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I do believe in cultivating positive thinking, but I think we need to acknowledge the suffering. Life is suffering and joy. It's light and dark, and they're all intermingled. In the midst of the darkest times in my life, there have been bits of light, and in the midst of the mm. happiest times. So... Yeah, we're not great at acknowledging that suffering is part of life. And I think even deeper, we somehow believe that if we were clever, talented enough, we can actually take all the suffering and push it over there and have a life only of joy. And when I actually stopped and thought about that, I realised that this was a pointless enterprise because we can't put a boundary and have the suffering over there and all the joy here. It wouldn't be joy then. It's like stars shine only in the darkness. What would the joy be without the counterpart of the suffering? I've invited you on The Meaningful Life as a witness for what makes life meaningful. So I think now is a very good time to actually ask you, what makes your life meaningful? Well, I have struggled with this question, Andrew, what makes my life meaningful? I think because it goes into the realm of the spiritual where I become incoherent. But it's something about the divine spark in each of us nurturing it in myself and in others. It's about recognising the divine spark inside you and cultivating it. That's very profound. And in other people too. And how do you cultivate your (laughs) divine spark? Oh dear, it just sounds so pretentious, doesn't it? It it, it doesn't, it sounds wonderful. (laughs) Okay, for me, and it's different for everyone, for me it will be going for a walk, like outside nature is a great way for me to access the the transcendental, I I call it God, but call it whatever you want, the universe, in other people, in relationships with other people, in solitude and silence, the more contemplative way, serving others, in accepting myself, which is possibly the hardest one of all of those. Accepting that even when you're having a Crap, tough time yeah. and you've done and you've done something wrong. I've been there is really still... ratty to everyone. I'm still lovable. I've still got that divine spark. Yeah. The divine spark is there <laughs> even when I'm ratty. Yes, it's that unconditional love of the universal God. And to accept that in myself is far greater challenge. Yeah. Accepting in other people, piece of cake. Well, okay, there are a few exceptions, but yeah, generally. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Rachel, for being a witness on The Meaningful Life. This is the point where, for most of our listeners, we're going to say goodbye. But if you want to contribute to The Meaningful Life and have access to the bonus material, we'll tell you how to do that in a moment. Um, you can also write a letter in like our correspondent correspondent did. Thank you very much to her. And there are all sorts of other benefits at higher levels in our supporters club. So in a second, you'll hear all the details about how to do that. Rachel, thank you. And goodbye for the time being. Thank you. 
You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.